Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, fiscal woes. Vancouver's financial outlook over the next four years projects a property tax increase of 9% each year to keep the budget balanced. Plus, a matter of survival. We look at how BC's wine industry is preparing to meet the challenges of climate change. Plus, infrastructure bottleneck. This month would have marked the second year of the 10-lane Massey Bridge being open. We look at the cost of cancelling the vital project. That's all next on the Jazz Hall Show podcast. Now, recently we learned the province will be sending British Columbians to Bellingham uh, to reduce wait times uh, in our province. As of early last week, about 87 patients have been referred by their oncologist through BC Cancer uh, for radiation therapy treatment in Bellingham. About 38 had booked uh, travel to the city. Now, it's estimated by the province that 4,800 patients will use the Bellingham option over the next couple of years. During the same period, BC is expected to see approximately 1,000 new patients uh, requiring radiation treatment. But I think for a lot of folks, the idea of Canadians having to go to Bellingham for cancer treatment, it doesn't sit well with us. So we have a, uh, a, a publicly funded healthcare system. It's not perfect, uh, but certainly uh, we need to do better, uh, especially if uh, we are sending uh, patients to the United States. It just doesn't work for many British Columbians. Uh, recently, uh, Como Television, based out of Seattle, traveled up to Vancouver to talk to our health Health Minister Adrian Dix about the fact that Canadians are now coming to Bellingham or will be going to Bellingham for cancer treatment. Take a listen to that story. A doctor has has told somebody they need the radiation therapy. Yes. British Columbia is going to pick somebody up, bus them, take them across the border, get them through customs and border security and right. get them to the clinic and if need be, spend the night for multiple days of therapy. Right. That's British Columbia Health Minister Adrian Dix, who has made the drastic decision to send hundreds of breast and prostate cancer patients across the international border for radiation treatment. Why didn't you anticipate this? I mean, if you knew that there was going to be a a, a patient load that you couldn't fulfill. First of all, we have had significant increase in population in BC. Secondly, and this is uh, important, we have specific problems. Uh, with machines, but I don't think people who are suffering right now and in this immediate period should have to wait when there's an option that was available to us to address it right away. That will mean the Canadian government will spend up to $39 million a year in Whatcom County. Dix says this will cost the province $12,000 for every patient and every visit, but he is unequivocal that this will only be temporary. It will be. No ifs, ands, or buts. No ifs, ands, or buts. Do you still feel that Canada has a better health system? Let's look at the facts. Infant mortality, way better. Life expectancy, way better. Health inequality, way better. Response to COVID-19, way better, right? I mean dramatically better. At every level of care, the Canadian system does better than the American system. And yet we still send Canadians to Bellingham. Well, our next guest uh, has been uh, looking at this story closely. Bristi Boss was a freelance journalist and editor based in Victoria. And she recently published a story uh, on the fact that uh, we are sending British Columbians down to Bellingham. Bristi, thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me, Jeff. So walk me through a little bit. You've been talking to a lot of doctors here uh, in British Columbia and some patients. Uh, what was the overall picture that emerged for you? Basically, I think the takeaway is that we don't actually know how many people are going to take BC up on this offer to go to Bellingham or be even be able to because of certain eligibility requirements and limitations. Um, one of the first things I wanted to do after listening to this announcement and being assigned the story by the TAI mm-hmm. um, was to find out what some of those, those logistical details are. Um, so right now what we know is that it is a little bit limited in its scope because um, it's A, for breast cancer and prostate cancer patients, and also because tr- um, it's only eligible for those whose treatment courses last around five days. Um, it's not clear whether it could be extended to more than that later on, but mm-hmm. for now, that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, and and would that just be partially be this program is just starting up, and, and as they ramp up, um, they may be hopefully be able to expand it and include more people? Potentially, yes. Um, the, the other limitations or, or perhaps considerations that were brought up by patients and, and people close to cancer care in D.C. is... The, the, the process of getting to Bellingham and, and people going there um, when they are so sick. So, for example, I talk, when I talked to a patient who is a 54-year-old woman with terminal breast cancer, um, she highlighted some of those reasons, like a lapsed passport that's going to take a long time to renew because she was, wasn't traveling during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But also this assumption that cancer patients all have strong community connections and people who would be able to go with them to the U.S., um, even though it has been kind of uh, lauded by people that um, that the province is paying for all of these things, they're paying for travel accommodations. Um, there's practical considerations at the border, and also, as, as this patient pointed out, um, you'll find cancer patients talking about how people disappear from their lives because they don't know how to process grief and death. Hmm. Um, Adrian Dix also said something similar in a, in a statement when I asked him some of these questions that, some people choose to stay in BC. Some people were not eligible to travel, and some people didn't have someone who could go with them. Um, what are the doctors saying to you? You talk. I'm assuming you talk to doctors here uh, in in British Columbia. What kind of things are you hearing from them? So uh, I'll start by saying that I reached out to a number of BC cancer oncologists as well as oncologists across the border. Mm-hmm. Um, no one in BC would answer any questions about this specific program. Um, all roads were directed to the BC Health Ministry. And then in the U.S., um, I talked to one oncologist at North Cascade um, Cancer Center, which is one of the clinics that mm-hmm. people are being sent to. And he said that the BC Health Ministry has asked them not to talk about the program and how it's going specifically. And Okay, so I, the medical fraternity is not saying much, is what you're saying, uh, saying to me. Yeah. But uh, yes, I did, I, I did talk to doctors, um, a family doctor in Victoria who pointed out that, yes, this is, a, this is a good thing. It's a good step because it is a relief to the backlog of patients who have been waiting for radiation therapy in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, of course, a disappointment, and it doesn't address other parts of the system that need need help. For example, the number of people waiting for a medical oncologist consult um, and the number of people waiting for tertiary services like MRI scans or or diagnostics and screening. Uh, I'm I'm curious, can the two clinics actually handle all of this? If if our government is saying that, look, we hope to have 4,800 
British Columbians, 1,400 patients, use the Bellingham option. Can those clinics handle that many people? That's that's a good question. It's it's something that I that um, a couple of people have raised, including Dr. Sanjeev Gandhi um, and Dr. Michael Cox, who is a researcher at the Prostate Cancer BC. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know whether these clinics can handle? And, and that's that's a question that the BC Health Ministry hasn't answered, and we don't know. Um, we don't know from the clinics either. I, I guess if, if, if you're a for-profit clinic, uh, if somebody com- comes along and offers you business, you're going to find a way to, to make sure you can say yes because it is ultimately uh, for-profit. You're a private hospital. Yeah, that's exactly the point that uh, Dr. Gandhi made. He, uh, he used to work in the U.S. for 17 years, um, and this is a quote. He said, it's not a thing to say no to patients when you're a private hospital. You always say yes because it's a for-profit business south of the border. Um, uh- yeah. yeah, you were mentioning Amber, uh, the 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 uh, Burnaby resident. Um, did she think this was a good idea overall? I know you you talked about some of the concerns that she had, but did she think of it as a good idea that ultimately, look, we have backlog here in Canada, and if it means at least for two years, four years, we use a Bellingham model in this case because it is close by, it does take some of that pressure off our system so we can get our own people through here as well. Mm-hmm. I, I can't speak for whether she thinks it's a good idea overall, but she did say that she would not take them up on it um, if she had been offered a chance to go to the U.S. for any part of her treatment herself. Um, and some of those reasons were mentioned earlier. But um, uh, overall, I mean, if you look at cancer care in B.C. overall, depending on where you are in the province, if you live in a rural community, for example, you're going to have to travel to a lower mainland or to Victoria anyway, um, pay for travel accommodations, find a place to stay, mm-hmm. and those things are not covered. So, um, whereas for people who are traveling to the U.S., they are covered by the province. So, that's not to say that this is a, a good long-term solution. But you know, those are the considerations and the things to keep an eye on. Yeah, Bristy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's focus a little bit on Vancouver politics and Vancouver budgets. Now, every year there uh, is a budget summary, a budget outlook that um, city staff prepare for elected officials. Give them a sense of, you know, what's on the books in regards to costs, what our obligations are as a city when it comes to capital costs in regards to infrastructure that has to be built, but also uh, programs that are being paid for uh, as well. Uh, I was looking at this the report today, and each year will be different, but one of the things that they were saying, to balance the budget over the outlook period, which is 2024 to 2028, uh, the, the, they were saying that the average property tax increase would have to be 9% each year over those four years, uh, which would equate to about an additional $116 per year for a medium strata property. But when I heard 9% every year, my eyes kind of bugged out. And so we called uh, City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young, who is joining us now. Thank you for coming in studio today. I want to talk to you about this 9% per year, every year for those four years, to just to stay up with costs. Am I correct there? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. Good to see you. Um, and, and let's back the truck up a little bit. As you said, this is a starting point and this is a regular report that uh, staff brings forward to council every summer. Um, and this outlook report assumes that, uh, as I said, it's a starting point, assumes that we're doing everything status quo the mm-hmm. way we've done it before. And that's certainly not the intention of this council. 
So again, that's if we're not changing something. So it shows a an average of 9% over the next three or four years was about 10.7% next year, and then it would start to decrease down to sort of into the sevens. Um, you would see that happen. But I just want to be very clear for everybody that's listening that when we approved the budget last time, we did, uh, and we heard our mayor, our mayor say loud and clear that those increases are not sustainable, and that's not what we want to continue to see because people we know can't afford and sustain that moving forward. So, so, But if you do nothing, if you do absolutely nothing and the system stays status quo over the next four years, it's a 9% on average property tax increase every single year for the next four years. So my follow-up question would be, uh, how do you reduce those costs? Are you talking about actually cutting certain programs, reducing them, or a mix of both with some property tax increase and then cuts somewhere else? Yeah, so one of the things that we did after we had to, to put that extraordinary increase forward, and again, not wanting to see that moving forward, was to launch the Mayor's Budget Task Force. Um, that was in April. Uh, that group is off and running. They have a mandate to do a line item review of the budget and bring forward either opportunities for where they see duplication, for efficiencies. We're talking about things like e-comply. So you have um, automatic uh, approval of permits with technology. So you simplify the processes. Um, and then uh, other opportunities, not just duplication, but for revenue generation. I will say, for example, recently we got a report from our independent auditor general who identified that uh, the city of Vancouver had left about $12 million on the table because it wasn't fully recovering permit fees because our permit processes were so slow. They extended to support and deliver housing over two or three years. We set them in a year. Um, there wasn't that due diligence around it. And so to give you some context, every $9 million is about 1% in property tax. That was one finding from one report from the Auditor General. We now have an entire task force and a budget task force, some super smart people. They're going to be coming back with a report in October before we look at the budget. Mm-hmm. And we'll be looking at opportunities to reduce that because we're going to try to keep this to a reasonable level. It's not our intention to try to sock, hit everybody with 9%. No, I admit, you know, Metro Vancouver or Vancouver itself at the city is unique in the met, in the Metro Vancouver area. You have a downtown core that people come into work. When you look at big events that happen, it's in the city uh, here. Uh, but at the same time, um, is this not a harsh reminder not only for Vancouver Council, but for all councils, that you got to get back to basics. There, I mean, there has to be programs where you got to kind of say, wait a minute here, that's the provincial government's role or the federal government's role. Uh, this has been downsized us. We shouldn't be picking up the pieces here. It should be on them. That the, I mean, I, I don't. I recall, you know, 2 or 3% wage increases, or sorry, property tax increases would have people howling sometimes, especially at 3 or 4. You hit that. Now we're at 8, 9, 10%. Doesn't that, at its core, still you just you're, you're doing more than you actually need to? And I, I mean, I know I'm oversimplifying things, but you know, garbage pickup, potholes, community centers—that's your core mandate. There seems to be a lot more the city's doing that it probably doesn't need to be doing. I mean, it looks to me that you, you should be cutting somewhere. So one of the good conversations we're actually having right now is, the, is actually quantifying the downloading. And uh, you heard the $250 million number that came out last term because I asked for that to be downloaded in terms of what the, where the city had stepped in. And they saw the gaps in the spending wasn't happening. So on things like housing, childcare, et cetera. So if you think about a $2 billion budget, if you've got about $250 million bucks that the city's picking up, that's pretty significant. We can do a lot in terms of cleaning the roads, in terms of having great extended hours for libraries, all of those pieces. And so starting to pull that back as we've seen additional investment for the provincial government, for example, in terms of childcare, but that's where the pressure points have been and that's why you've seen sort of the levels of cleanliness haven't been there in the city. Uh, things like underinvestment in our aging infrastructure. We know we've got a huge gap. We're an older city, um, and we need to invest in building the amenities back up. So that's a big part of it is that advocacy piece. Um, and when you have the aging infrastructure, it's why you have utilities going up yeah. also across the region, not unique to Vancouver, aging sewer pipes, all of that. But just to clarify, you said you're, you're, in the, you're, doing, you're providing daycare? 
Uh, we had prov- the city had uh, started investing in areas like you said that were not our responsibility. They were provincial in terms of childcare, so not just uh, saying okay, here's city land for it, but providing operating grants. And we're peeling that back. You're seeing reductions in investment there because the province has stepped up, and that's a provincial responsibility. So, so that was one. What, are, what are the other? Be- what are the other two? Uh, Housing has been another one as okay. well. Uh, the city and- can provide again. Uh, we have land. It makes sense to to sort of be great partners and support that and move housing forward. We don't necessarily need to provide ho- housing support and other grants. Again, that's the role of BC Housing in the province. So that's a big part of this review. Two hundred fifty million dollars. Two hundred fifty million, I think, is actually under quantified. I actually think the gap is bigger than that, and that came from one memo and one sort of, I think, um, review. And I think when we start digging down, and I'll be really interested to see the results of the task force. We're going to see other opportunities. Yeah, and I, I, I don't mean to be cold. I mean, I, I like to believe I have a heart, but if it's not your core business. Make sure those who are supposed to be providing that, meaning the province and, and perhaps even the feds, and it's one of the reasons where the housing issues we've gotten to this point is the feds got out of the housing business many decades ago and they need to get back into it. It looks like they are. But that seems to be huge amounts of savings there. It's huge amounts of savings, and we've got massive underinvestment in infrastructure, about a $500 million annual infrastructure gap just to renew what we already have. So sewer pipes, community centers. Um, keeping our parks clean, you saw the side of the, of the aquatic center fall off. All of that is a direct result of the fact that other things were prioritized and we underinvested in those core services, the things that a city should be doing. And so that's really about refocusing um, on the ship. So it's how can you be more efficient with technology? How can you get back to what the city's supposed to be doing? Yeah. Uh, how can you make sure you don't have some of those redundancies and you're putting the money where it needs to be? I got I got to tell you, Sarah, I, you know, I'm just a simple boy from the suburbs. I've never seen one city with so many closures of of uh, the public pool uh, or just simple amenities. I mean, it does happen in the suburbs. We're certainly far from perfect. But Vancouver, you're in a unique place, but you're right. I mean, you don't see closures or hear about closures like this in Surrey or in Delta or in Coquitla. I mean, they do happen, but certainly not to the extent that they do in Vancouver. So you're Yeah, and Van- Vancouver deserves gr- great amenities. We're growing. Yeah, We've yeah. got major immigration coming forward, and this is why we're so bullish on um, pointing this out so that we can actually move it forward with the province and say, look, you guys, this is where you need to be stepping up. And if you want Vancouver to move forward and support growth and welcome new residents, we want to do that and build the housing, then we need the infrastructure and amenities that goes with that. And that has always fallen solely on the city to deliver the amenities, and it's becoming incredibly more expensive. And so that's why you really to look at how our city is funded because the property tax dollars alone uh, do not cut the civic investments that we need to see. So when you and I are here uh, before property tax time uh, next year, I'm going to assume we're going to have a conversation about some increase, a modest increase with probably some cuts along the way. You may call them efficiencies, whatever they may be, but there hopefully will be some increase, but mostly, as I said, the city finding uh, the core competency that it's responsible for and focusing on that. I think it's about focusing the investments on things that people expect us to spend the money on yeah. um, and uh, and they can actually see where their tax dollars are going and I think we'll be having this conversation in the fall because we get that budget task force back in October and typically we'll pass the budget by December. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We 
recently, uh, the BC wine industry um, has been talking about the impact of climate change uh, on the industry. Today, uh, Wine Growers of BC held a press conference to talk a little bit about uh, the freezing events uh, that we had covered in December of 2020-22 and the impact uh, they had uh, on the industry and continue to have on the industry. Joining me now is Miles Proden, President and CEO of Wine Growers of British Columbia. Miles, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. So uh, let's touch on the freeze event, for, certainly from December of 2022. Uh, give our audience a sense of the damage that it caused and, and sort of the impact it's had on the industry and continues to have on the industry. Well, I thought you uh, prefaced uh, the, the conversation well. Uh, it is related clearly to climate change. and We've been seeing a, a decrease in the quantity, certainly not the quality, but the quantity of grapes for a number of years now. And we're actually down overall about 30% where we've been historically in the last several years. And we can relate that directly back to climate change. And, and by climate change, at least for grape growers, that means freezing below 20 degree temperatures in the wintertime and hot uh, heat dome uh, temperatures in the summertime and smoke. And smoke, while it comes in, may not directly affect the grapes, but it affects the amount of sunlight the, the grapes get. So overall, uh, we've been in, in witnessing a, a decline in, in our grapes. The the incident to the, the, the event that you speak of this past winter, it got down to minus 30. But more importantly, uh, it extended all the way down to the Asuyas, to the Washington State border. We've never seen those cold temperatures extend all that, that far down south. And so that's been devastating to us. Uh, including probably up to 56% uh, loss of our entire uh, anticipated harvest this year. Wow. Um, So uh, what needs to be done, short-term, medium to long-term, to make sure this industry is is kept healthy? Uh, Is the government now working with the industry at all in regards to looking at uh, new strategies to deal with this? Well, they certainly are. I mean, when we were able to identify climate changes as causing that uh, initial uh, decrease in, in the harvest, uh, we were able to go and convince uh, the provincial government that uh, wine grapes needed to be included in, in, in replant programming. Hmm. There have been a number of replant programs uh, for other tree fruit uh, industries uh, in this province, primarily uh, apples, uh, but grapes have never been included in that. So for the first time this year, grapes were included. And what that's going to allow us to do is make sure that we've got the right plant, the right vine planted in the right area to really do it the best job against climate control. But that takes time. You, you, you don't just take out everything at once, obviously, because then you'd be left with nothing. Mm-hmm. So you need to do that over a staggered o- approach or over a number of years. Um, but what we found was that when it was opened up to wineries, it was fully subscribed immediately. And so what that told us is that the amount of money the provincial government set aside is not adequate. So that needs definitely to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And for our audience, uh, I'm just looking at the release uh, that uh, your organization sent out earlier today in regards to the freeze event. But uh, the overall impact here, uh, just for our audience, uh, there's a 54% reduction in grape and wine production for the 2020. 2023 vintage, 45% of total plant acreage uh, suffered long-term damage, 29% of total acreage needs to be replanted, uh, $133 million in direct revenue lost the BC wine industry, a 20% reduction in full-time vineyard and winery uh, employment. So it certainly talks to the huge impact that is before uh, the industry. I'm curious, Miles, do we expect some wineries to not make it because of every all the numbers that I've talked about here in the impact broadly? speaking? 
Sadly, it's true. Uh, that's the anticipation. I think you know it's important to point out that the wine industry is unique in the province, obviously, um, because of the great wine we produce, but just the nature of it as an agricultural commodity. So we mm-hmm. grow grapes, certainly, but we also make wine. So it's really the, the one of the largest, the greatest uh, value-add ag products that we have. And so when the grapes can be replaced, ultimately, either whether it's through a replant program or, you know, whatever it takes to look after the grapes, there is a longer-term play there that we can help to to, to mitigate that. Mm-hmm. But what is critical are those wineries who are only going to have half as much grapes to work with this year. So the analogy I draw is uh, imagine if you and I were told uh, – Guess what? We're, you're only going to get paid half the uh, amount as we paid you last year. Uh, you know, good luck. Uh, what's the first thing you and I are going to do? Well, we're going to look to reduce costs. And so that's where we see some of those unemployment numbers or, or, or job loss numbers. Um, wineries are going to have to scale back, and some of them just cannot absorb a, a 50% uh, cut in, uh, in, in, in revenues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, does, and this is a, bro- a broader question um, beyond just British Columbia's uh, uh, um, provincial boundary, but is the wine map expanding because of climate change? Well, it's it's interesting if you point that out because that's a, that's a good point. Climate change does not necessarily mean global warming, and I think the uh, freeze event that we uh, we uh, experienced is a good indicator of that. But it's also as things are warming up, it's allowing us to expand our grape growing uh, capacity throughout the province and. You know, if, if people are aware, there is some fantastic grapes that are growing. Uh, well, we're growing anyways in the Thompson Valley uh, out of Kamloops, but they suffered a 90% uh, loss. And Lillooet is another example of areas that traditionally uh, couldn't really sustain. Um, they could get the heat, but they couldn't really sustain the cold winters. And uh, again, that's come back uh, and they've they've been devastated by that. Mm-hmm. Even globally, I would think I was reading that you know in places like England, you're seeing wineries pop up, more wineries pop up. Belgium, Den- Denmark, Norway, Sweden, areas yep. perhaps you generally didn't consider wine regions, but they are certainly looking at it as an industry. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know there's cool climate, and uh, you can grow grapes in a lot of different areas. What it really comes down to is the ripening of them. And so you need to have that heat that the Okanagan's famous for, sort of in late summer and fall. And uh, a lot of those areas that you describe certainly are getting those kinds of uh, that heat to really to, to ripen the, to ripen the grapes. But you know, and in the same sense that there's areas opening up, there are areas that are closing down, and we hear all the time about uh, projections in some places in California that eventually are just going to be too warm to grow grapes. So there definitely is a shift sort of north, but it doesn't always mean warming. And again, I mm-hmm. think this uh, freeze event we just uh, just experienced is a great example of what climate change means. It means unpredictability and uh, really a change to uh, how farming needs to be done. Um, you were talking about replanting. So when you replant, would you consider different types of grapes because of climate change? Absolutely. I mean, some grapes do better. It's all about where the, it all just depends on the grape variety, what type of grape it is, and where it's planted. And so some are more susceptible to different soil conditions, to different weather conditions, and the rest of it. And as climate changes, so too do those grapes need to change. And that's why it's important that we get uh, a properly funded uh, replant program so that we can make sure we're getting the right grapes into the right place. But as I say, that's about the grapes. What's really missing or needs to be considered are those wineries that just are not going to have the grapes 
to continue on. And, and those numbers you were describing earlier on mm-hmm. uh, are about our industry. But the our industry expands extends much further than just the wineries. And you think about the tourism here in the Okanagan and mm-hmm. the tourism uh, in on the, there, there is all kinds of wineries spread throughout this province. And we've got a fabulous uh, wine tourism product. But without wine to sell or wine to experience, that's going to have a detrimental effect. So those numbers and the economic spin of uh, economic impact is going to spin and, and, and cause damage throughout the economy. Well, you raise a very good point. You're right. It's not just the, the grapes themselves. It's staying at the hotels. It's going to the restaurants. It's uh, it's all of it. And you and the Okanagan uh, and all southern Ontario has done a fabulous job. Your industry has done a fabulous job in, in building it all. You just have this um, significant challenge before you as, as the industry does, does globally. I'm curious, um, even weather prediction, uh, which is which is an art. <laughs> it's a different. I used yeah. to watch the six o'clock news, and sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they don't. It's just the nature of weather. But I'm just curious for your industry: is there any talk of of? Uh, I, and I don't even know how to phrase this, but looking at weather or predicting weather uh, that's different or will be different moving forward, because it seems to me if you know the freezing event, can you do anything about it? I don't know. But is there any way your industry is looking different at even weather prediction? Well, I think I think I mean the you know, predictions are, are are premised on historical events, right? So mm-hmm. I mean you need to understand what's happened in the past to even get some kind of semblance semblance of a guess on what what the future is going to be. And our industry is uh, innovative; um, they they are not taking this lying down for for sure. Uh, they've got the technology; they've been tracking weather, uh, you know, in some areas, you know, by the square foot just to see what's going on. So collectively, all that data allows us to do two things, maybe predict what's going to have happen, but maybe even more so is predict what grape we should be putting in that spot, right? So if we know what the weather historically has been there and what it, the trend looks like it's going to be, mm-hmm. that's the kind of science that we need so that we can make an informed investment in a replant and not just replanting the plant for the sake of, 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 of continuing, but making sure that that replanted plant will thrive and contribute to the winery's success. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not specifically related uh, uh, to what you do, but I've got to ask anyway, um, just getting your product to market. We've had a story a few days ago here on CKNW and on Global BC about, uh, you know, by being able to buy even uh, BC wine from Alberta and getting it shipped here to, to BC, and it's technically cheaper by doing doing it that way rather than even purchasing it uh, through, um, through, through, through our, our liquor liquor distribution system. Um, how is your industry overall in regards to the way you feel you're treated by the government here in, in regards to taxation, your ability to get stuff to customers, your ability to send it to customers in, in, in other provinces? I'm just curious how you see these things, especially when I saw that story. And, you know, you know, yeah. you go online and you buy from the Alberta government or sorry, from a private sector uh, 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 private sector business, and it's cheaper than actually buying it in BC. There's something fundamentally wrong to that, you know. Well, it's it is, listen. It's complex. It's it's alcohol, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's heavily regulate, regulated as it should be. You know, it's a it's a it's a substance that needs to be uh, governed. I mean, there are regulations that tell us where we can buy it, who can buy it, where you can consume it, and the rest of it. It also generates a tremendous amount of revenue for, for, for governments, whether they're provincially or federally. So people have got a big interest in this. But I think, you know, as is the Canadian history, history or story, we've got a patchwork of, uh, of regulations uh, across this country and, and harmonizing those to allow, 
the shipment of a Canadian product to a Canadian, in this instance, BC wine, 100% BC wine to someone across Canada, has always been something that we've been advocating for. But here in the province, we're fortunate. Uh, we uh, are supported by the government. Uh, we have, uh, you know, access to uh, to the market, uh, but it's competitive. Um, mm-hmm. People say, listen, with that increase or sorry, decrease in supply, why don't you just, you know, push your push your uh, prices up? And we can't do that because there's so much cheap uh, import product available and consumers have a choice to that, that we could very quickly price ourselves outside of uh, outside of the marketplace. And we're not interested in that. We want to deliver a, a good product at a fair price. And so far, we've been very successful uh, and BC consumers have really uh, in, in embraced that and really supported our industry. Miles, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you in studio next time you're in Vancouver. I look forward to it. And if you're ever back in the, or ever here in the Okanagan, Kelowna specifically, let me know and I can show you where the good stuff is. <laughs> I will probably take you up on that. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for the interest. This morning, I traveled through the uh, Massey Tunnel, like I always do, to come into work. And, uh, you know, it was uh, not a bad day today. It was a good day today, and I left a little later than I usually do. Uh, But you always, once in a while, have to remind yourself how old that piece of infrastructure is. Uh, The Massey Tunnel uh, opened for traffic in May 23, May 23rd, 1959. Here's a a short little report uh, from that day when it opened. Now the job is done. The engineering dream, a reality. The hardships and the dangers are mere entries in technical reports. The men who built the tunnel have scattered to a hundred different jobs around the world. Memories are short, and this monumental achievement will soon be taken for granted. But it is all the greater for that. Dee's Island Tunnel is now more than an engineering project. It is the artery of a people whose future is more assured. Dee's Island Tunnel, a triumph of today for British Columbia's tomorrow. What I found amazing of that uh, report uh, from that time, Queen Elizabeth actually uh, uh, drove through the tunnel uh, when she uh, visited and when they opened it. Uh, you know, 64 years later and one, 64 years and one month later, uh, we're still <laughs> dealing with this tunnel. Uh, in fact, what I found interesting was just it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Ministry of Transportation uh, talked, uh, sent out a press release actually talking about uh, uh, putting a call out for companies interested in building the new eight-lane immersed tunnel. The fact that the transportation ministry is sending out a press release just to get companies interested to finally eventually have a request for proposals. It's all bureaucratic talk, but essentially they're sending out a press release basically saying, look, if you're interested, come and come and talk to us. Uh, and it's 2023. Well, joining us now uh, is Kevin Falcon, at least the BC United Party, official opposition leader as well. We want to talk a little bit about the Massey Tunnel. Uh, Kevin, let me start first and foremost. Uh, the bridge that was proposed, and yes, cancelled by the NDP, it would have been open now, right? It would have been open last summer. It would, uh, t- just to briefly recap for your listeners, it was a 10-lane bridge. Mm-hmm. It was uh, not only would it provide the 10 lanes, two of the lanes dedicated for public transit to encourage people to take transit, four commuter lanes in each direction, but it was also engineered and designed to allow for the expansion of SkyTrain. So it would go from the ultimately from the Richmond uh, Bridgeport Station all the way up and over and right through to South Surrey, which would be exactly the kind of infrastructure we want to be building that's thinking about the future and the population growth that we're seeing, especially south of the Fraser. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from a $3.5 billion 10-lane bridge cancelled to a 8-lane tunnel. 
Uh, and it says it's supposed to be operational by 2030 with a budget of 4.15. So we're getting 20% less capacity. We're paying more for it. Uh, and it's operational by 2030. You've been a former Minister of Transportation. Mm-hmm. What's the chance of that actually being ready to go by 2030 in your mind? Well, it's actually worse than what you've described because they actually had a fixed price contract in place with a consortium uh, of partners that were going to build that bridge for $2.6 billion. So literally, uh, the NDP walked away from a deal that was $900 million below the budget of $3.5 billion. Uh, and they were ready to go. And in fact, I always remember, uh, Jazz, you in particular, because for years, of course, there was the preload. $100 million yeah. had been spent on getting that you know, bridge ready to get built. And, and the way that, that we used to do those kind of projects is you de-risk the things that the private sector can't, you know, it's difficult to cost. One of those is soils conditions. So what they do is they take care of all that. We took care of the preload. I wasn't in government at the time. You were actually. And they moved the power lines in preparation for the construction mm-hmm. to just get going. So literally all the NDP had to do was sign that contract. Construction would have started. It would have been open last summer. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating that today, as I was out there celebrating the second anniversary, the second summer, that that bridge is, that should have been there is no longer there. All I could see behind me were that line of cars and trucks. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded of the 2017 press release that, uh, that was issued that pointed out that commuters spend one million hours a year in congestion on that corridor. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question to you, the mayor's mayor's council at Metro Vancouver never supported it. The Richmond mayor never supported it. Uh, the Delta mayor at the time, uh, to my understanding, did, although there were some Delta residents that opposed it. What say in your mind do mayors have in something like this? They don't put a cent into the project, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know. My argument would be that, look, it, it connects not only commuters, but ferry users. South Surrey, Langley are growing people on the border. Uh, we just had approval of a major expansion of the port out mm-hmm. to Austin as well. What say should mayors have in this? Uh, because I've always felt they've been so siloed, uh, and I'll, we can talk a little bit about that, but our infrastructure planning and approval just gets bogged down, in my opinion, by this parochial mindset that it's my backyard and you can't do it here because I don't support it, even though they're not putting a penny in this. You're 100% correct. I mean, look, that was my experience. I was Minister of Transportation for six years, one of the longest serving. I was uh, oversaw the construction and development of the Canada Line, the Evergreen Line, the Sea to Sky Highway, the South Fraser Perimeter Road, the Portman Bridge, the Pitt River Bridge, all kinds of projects. And I can tell you this, if I had uh, been governed by not going ahead in a project because a, a mayor or local mayor is opposed it, nothing would have got built. Every one of those projects had opposition of some sort. And that's okay. You have to take into account their concerns and, and you try and build those concerns into the project to make sure that you, you know, uh, try and accommodate them as much as possible. But you cannot be paralyzed, as this government has been, by uh, some local opposition. I'll give you another example. The Patalo Bridge, which is a four-lane bridge built in 1938. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. And back then, Surrey's population was 14,000 people. Today, it's 600,000. The NDP went ahead to replace the bridge, which is a good thing. But because the mayor of New Westminster complained, they said, oh, well, we better just make it four lanes then because he doesn't want additional lanes. Well, frankly, are you kidding me? 
you know, Surrey's going to have a population of a million people in the next 10 years, and you're going to build the same number of lanes for, for the, you know, the size of the population. That's not thinking about future generations, and it drives me crazy. But unfortunately, with this government, that is actually just the way they operate. We are speaking to Kevin Falcon, BC United leader, opposition leader as well, former transportation minister. We we're talking about, uh, about the uh, George Massey Tunnel and that uh, if the bridge hadn't been cancelled, the 10-lane bridge, it would be uh, year two for the bridge uh, open uh, for uh, taxpayers to use. Uh, instead, we have a tunnel uh, built in May 23rd. 1959. <laughs> Put that in your pocket and deal with it. Anyway, give us a call on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 uh, on your cell phone. And look, the question I got to ask everybody is, and I don't have an answer, why do we politicize infrastructure, vital infrastructure for this region that can move people? 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to Stephen Ladner. Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I've been wanting to talk about this forever. You know what, I've lived in Ladner for 30 years. I've quit two jobs because I couldn't drive through the tunnel. I bought an electric car, spent 45000 bucks so I can get an HOV lane, but everybody cheats. Now I'm going to get a four-lane tunnel that has one bus lane, so it's going to be three lanes going one direction, which exactly is what it is now. No future planning, you know, and it's been politicized. And it's only $1,000 per citizen, you know, to make up for that $4 billion overage. And you know what? Quite honestly, Mr. Falcon, you tell me this. They will not be allowed to build the tunnel because they won't be allowed to dig up the Fraser River bed because of the fish. So they're just delaying it for another three years because it's not going to pass environmental things. The the bridge was going to have two pillars on the land, so it wasn't even going to interfere. And I heard they didn't want it. Some people didn't want shade or shadow from the, the columns of the bridge. This is just ridiculous incompetence and as a as a taxpayer, I just don't get it, and you know I give up quite honestly. Yeah, I give up. I, I really understand uh, Steve's frustration, Jazz, because he's right. First of all, a hundred million had already been spent, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, so that was all flushed down the toilet. Second thing is he's right. There's going to be massive environmental impact when you try to take eight huge concrete tubes and dump them into the Fraser River and all the excavation you're going to have to do. You've got salmon, you've got sturgeon, you've got huge environmental impacts, which is why I've said that should I become the next premier of this province, we will be going ahead with the bridge. We'll dust off the plans, we'll update the environmental assessment work that was already done and approved. That would take about six months, and we'll get started on construction. The plans are already done. Everything's all in place. The, the, the other thing he mentioned that's really important, though, is they're talking about an eight-lane tunnel. Two of the lanes would be dedicated for buses. Yeah. No ability to allow for future rapid transit as the bridge would. And, as he points out, you'd have exactly the same number of lanes that you've got today with the huge, heavy congestion, the million hours a year that people are spending in that congestion at that tunnel uh, nothing would change, and yet it's going to cost billions of dollars more, more than double what it would have cost on the $2.6 billion fixed-price deal they already had in place. Uh, so we're going to pay more to get less, and we won't see it for at least another eight years, probably 10. Let's go to uh, Scott Langley. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hey, Jess. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, uh, you, you talk about the bridge a lot, but there's also the infrastructure out in Langley, uh, which was supposed to be the highway widening project that was supposed to be actually quite open last year all the way to Whatcom Road. But as far as I see it, the contractor of Key West Asphalt has actually just walked away from the project exactly probably about one year ago today, probably. And nothing's being built. Uh, they're building an overpass at 
Glover Road, but there's probably no highway for it to go on to. Scott, so thank, just, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. I mean, I've traveled on Highway 1 quite a bit. It's been what, about a month when I've been all the way down to Langley and Abbotsford in that area. But um, that inevitably has to be, you know, we do have to expand roadways still all the way out to Abbotsford. And hopefully one day a SkyTrain, I would assume. Uh, of course. And, and the reason why that uh, they walked away is because the government deferred uh, that in their budget and said, no, that's not a priority for the NDP government. Now, I guarantee you before the election, they'll be saying, oh, suddenly it's a priority again. And they'll, you know, do what they always do, which is make all these promises. But at the end of the day, I just want the public to really understand we have to look at outcomes. What results are we actually getting? And, you know, what I find frustrating is not just what's not happening on the number one, but even this delay. That's why I went out there today to say this is the second anniversary of when that bridge should have been open and people would have been enjoying all those benefits. And somebody should be held accountable for that gross, stupid decision because it is an epically stupid decision. If you were to build that bridge, would you toll it? No. No, I've been very clear I wouldn't toll it. Do you regret tolling Portman? No, because that was the only way we were going to get it built, to be honest with you. We just, it was the only way at that time. Remember, we were in very different fiscal circumstances. And we, I wanted to get that bridge built no matter what. I felt it was critical. And I think it's important to point out that the NDP government opposed that bridge from every step of the way. Now they said, oh, great, we took the tolls off. But that bridge would have never been there had they been in government because they opposed the very idea of building that 10-lane bridge. Let's go to Jim in Richmond. Hi, Jim. Hey, Kevin. Uh, thank you for taking my uh, Mr. Walton. Sorry, thank you for taking my call. Two questions. Um, will you promise not to, um, when infrastructure projects are started, not flip on them like the NDP did, where it's, we're, we're into a project and all of a sudden they decide to cancel it? And the second question is, um, what about a bridge from Coquitlam to North Vancouver? Uh, there isn't a way of getting successfully from the North Shore to um, Sickleville, and there was a bridge in the, few, in the past plan. Uh, good questions. Uh, you live on the North Shore, and it, it, I was talking to a friend just yesterday. But there's a neglected area that desperately needs some sort of rapid transit, uh, whether it's east-west uh, uh, there or uh, a new bridge. I remember as a reporter once covering conversations about a tunnel down First Avenue all the way to North Shore. Um, uh, how would you deal with the issue of, of the North Shore and Coquitlam, number one? And then, of course, the other issue was the sure. flip-flop question. Sure. So first of all, your last question. So I'd, I'd have to get a little more information on that, Jim. To be honest with you, I think there has been some preliminary work. The ministry typically is always looking at options and they do high level uh, sort of scoping to sort of see, you know, uh, from an engineering and design point of view, what's possible, what isn't. Uh, but, you know, I've been out of government for, for a decade, so I'd have to, uh, when I get back into office, to dig that up and talk to the staff and figure out what, what options we have available. In terms of flipping, I, look, just look at my track record. I, I can tell you um, I faced lots of opposition on many projects. Sea to Sky Highway, I had people protesting for two years at Eagle Ridge Bluffs, you know, saying, don't do it, don't do it. Um, the Canada Line, I had the TransLink Council was trying to stop us, saying they didn't agree with the corridor, thought I should be using different technology. Same thing with the Evergreen Line. There was local mayors that wanted light rail, not the rapid transit, etc. Um, at the end of the day, leadership is about making decisions, and it's about getting things done. And once we've done the consultation, we've listened to all the input, then we get on with building it. That's what I was known for. 
you know, just getting things done and executing. And that's what we don't see in this province right now is leadership, because we've got to be doing this stuff now. Anything we think we're doing is not nearly enough. I can guarantee you this, because our population is growing so dramatically. That's why we've got a massive housing shortage. That's why we've got, you know, uh, hospitals that are overflowing, because we're, we haven't got a government that's making decisions and executing on those decisions in spite of the opposition you're bound to face. Kevin, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Jess. Well, I was uh, reading the Vancouver Sun today and uh, reading Vaughn Palmer's column, and uh, I'd forgotten about that the topic was the Royal BC Museum, and I'd forgotten about the Royal BC Museum uh, since the um, the brouhaha uh, a few years ago uh, after the then Premier announced uh, that they were going to shut the museum down and spend a billion dollars to build a brand new museum. And, of course, uh, Premier Horgan at the time... Um, walked it back and said, look, that's on me. That's the wrong way to go. Uh, They had hired a new CEO. They had talked about decolonizing the museum and making changes. Well, the present CEO, uh, Alicia Dubois, uh, left uh, as well. So what's going on over at the Royal BC Museum? Uh, And, you know, what, what should we, what should a modern museum that's supposed to represent BC history, BC culture, what should it look like? Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the museum, Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, and uh, I'm not going to say an expert on the Royal BC Museum, but certainly one who's been there many, many times because he has young kids. Richard, welcome. Yeah, I feel like enough of an expert, Jazz, because of all the hours I have spent there with my family. So I have uh, covered this story a lot, so I'm somewhat of an expert in that regard, but I feel like my true expertise is the number of hours I've had to log there with uh, two kids in tow. So my question to you, what is going on here? You know, it was all well and good for the Premier to say, hey, this is on me, I'm going to walk it back, and I think most British Columbians were appreciative of Mr. Horgan doing so because of the billion-dollar price tag. Uh, and then one would assume they, they would have heard and, uh, you know, headed down the right course. But what's happened here? Yeah, it's been a total mess is what has happened here. And there's been greater political involvement over the last few years than ever before. So this stems not just from the province, uh, the promise that uh, John Horgan made as premier, which was to tear down this museum and rebuild a new one, but the work that uh, new tourism minister Lana Popham has been doing since she was sworn in uh, last fall uh, to work on um, rebuilding what is on the current footprint of the museum. And there has been a significant tension point there, Jazz, between Minister Popham and uh, Royal BC CEO Alicia Dubois. Uh, Her mandate, Alicia Dubois, was to work towards a modern museum but her heavy focus was on reconciliation and decolonization. And the sticking point was the closure of the third floor at the museum, where Dubois uh, wanted to keep that floor closed uh, for an extended period of time until the, pr- until the museum could totally rethink what it looks like. And Minister Lana Popham wanted to see it reopen, uh, explaining to the public about the challenges about colonization, uh, but also ensuring that it's open to boost tourism. And ultimately, the minister went out here and Alicia Dubois uh, put in her resignation, uh, which was not just about the third floor, but in that letter, she writes around wanting, unable to fulfill the goals that she had set out for herself and that her mandate had changed so much that she had left. I think the reality here, Jazz, was the museum 
needs to move forward and Dubois was doing so too slowly. Um, well, I guess the question to ask is here, but is the NDP here with a minister like Lana Popham also trying to read the tea leaves here and saying, look, where's public sentiment at? Uh, and I think anybody, most people, reasonable people would say, look, there have to be some changes, uh, but do we really need to get rid of that third floor? Can we reimagine it? Uh, and and perhaps can we reimagine it while the museum is open? Can we move forward? Is there a bit of, bit of that pressure on the NDP minister to say, look, we can't have it just permanently shut down for a few years while we try to figure out what to do with it? She's a local MLA here. And she reads the local newspaper. And the Victoria Times columnist has never seen more letters to the editor than it has about this issue. And universally, it was about, let's reopen the third floor. Let's keep the museum intact. And then at that point, have our conversation about what the future looks like. I think most people agree that there needs to be a much better reflection in that museum about reconciliation. But BC is far larger than just the issue of reconciliation. We should have in that museum a world-class exhibit speaking about the importance of First Nations communities in our province and what those First Nations communities bring uh, in terms of culture and historical fabric and language. That should be celebrated. We should have world-class exhibits speaking about um, the role of forestry and the role of mining and the role of agriculture and our great heroes like Terry Fox. If you were to walk through the museum now, you would be lost in seeing those things. We also need a museum that is more inclusive for families. You know, my kids are 11 and 7. They've been going to this museum since they were tiny. Mm -hmm. And there are so few options there for them in terms of interactive exhibits, things that they can feel British Columbia. There have been some temporary exhibits that have done that. There was one on Orca Whales. Those sort of things should be permanent. We should feel what it feels like to be a British Columbia, not just... For locals here, but for visitors. And and the last point, people are driving in Metro Vancouver listening, why should I care about the museum? It's a Victoria attraction. Well, whoever the new CEO is needs to embrace that and say, this is the museum for all British Columbians. There needs to be a way to, to tour some exhibits around the province, but also make people not just that live in Victoria, but that live in Vancouver and other places at home. They went, in terms of consultation jazz, they went to Prince George. Guess how many people showed up for that public consultation in Prince George. One, one oh, person had a feedback on what the future of the museum looks like in one of our most important cities in the province. That's laughable. Whoever the new CEO is needs to do a much better job at making the rest of the province feel connected to this institution. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Look, I, as Vancouver, I can say, yeah, I I, I, used to, I visited the museum when I was a kid and, and my parents took us there when uh, for, for a family holiday. I remember that. And you can say, look, it's a Victoria Museum. What has it got to do with me? But, you know, we Vancouverites will also expect the provincial government to be involved in some capacity when the Vancouver Art Gallery makes a move to its newer home with a brand new facility. Um, so it works both ways. And, and last time I checked, it's a provincial capital, tremendous amount of tourists go there. And if it is the home for our collective history, provincial history, we should be looking at it. Now, maybe a billion dollars isn't the response, uh, but you do have to take a provincial museum seriously. I think that's part of the issue. We sort of get bogged down on, well, you know, we're spending too much money, not right now with COVID and anything else, but our heritage should mean something. Preserving it and presenting it should matter, uh, and it should be world class uh, for a city like Vancouver. But I think you're right in regards to taking it, uh, taking some of those exhibits around the province would certainly be helpful. So moving forward, right now, it seems like the NDP just want this to go away, and they'll find a new CEO, perhaps give them new directions that that are probably 
closer to the sentiments of people writing to the Victoria Times colonists and say, look, do what you need to do, but do it a lot slower and consult. And I mean, is that is that where you think this is all going? Yeah, we know that this summer Old Town will reopen. That's one of the crucial pieces of the third floor. There's no timeline on when the first People's Gallery will reopen. I feel like politicians are going to become more involved in this than they ever have in terms of figuring out what the next steps are because they agree with a lot of the sentiment that you laid out, Jazz, that this is an important reflection of our culture in our province and there needs to be a CEO who sees it with the same urgency. The work that was being done by Alicia Dubois was critically important. She had um, groups here in Victoria that were well attended. People wanted to have that dialogue about reconciliation and those voices are crucial here. But clearly there needs to be sort of a different pace. You talk about slowing down. I think in part, this is about seeing what we've heard and making a decision, executing on what we've heard and moving past all of this. Mm -hmm. In terms of a physical home, I think that's not going to happen. We know that Premier David Eby was not as interested in the physical new museum as Premier John Horgan was. I don't expect a new museum there, although it is much needed. But I do expect there has to be new exhibits there. There's so much space now that they've blown out as they've altered Old Town. Mm -hmm. There has to be a way to fill that with ways to celebrate our culture, use the bottom floor, which is wide open, find ways to engage kids, use the outdoor space. There are so many options that doesn't just make it a good tourist attraction, but makes it something where people can feel connected. I was in Atlanta, Georgia once, Jazz, for Mm -hmm. a visit. We went to the Capitol building there. Mm -hmm. And you walk through that building, and it is in essence a museum and a political place uh, because you go in every room and you feel connected to Georgia. You see exhibits about Coca-Cola, about peaches, about CNN, about the Olympics, about Martin Luther King Jr., important institutions in that state, and you feel connected to it visiting. The Royal BC Museum needs to find a way to do that so that people that experience it can feel connected to what's so incredible about our province. Richard, thank you uh, for your time today. And more stuff about Terry Fox. Get his stuff there as a permanent exhibit, including that camper van that's so iconic. I think there's so much we can do to celebrate BC Jazz. Absolutely. That's Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative uh, reporter. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.